Hey, it's your old pal Hanky here. Um, apologies, we've been offline for a little bit of time, uh, very much out of pocket. And obviously, as it's the summer, it's typically a very slow time in the watch business. So there hasn't been a whole lot to comment on one way or the other. However, um, some news was brought public that some of us were already in possession of right around Basel World Time. And it now is, as, as we hit Torneau, fully cooked. It seems like a good time to air it out a little bit. Today we're going to go very, very short. This is meant to be just a facts-only um, podcast. It is going to be a little bit personal because some of it's going to touch on my time when I work for Doxa Watches and what's going on with Doxa Watches now. So stay tuned. Okay, so we're back and the topic today is Doxa and I guess more specifically the Doxa sub. I'm going to give kind of a brief overview of um, DOXA and the sub and, and maybe why it's important uh, to today's watch collectors and watch buyers and watch fans. Probably in a lot of ways that even some of the bigger brands don't really have the same level of influence. A um, long time ago, DOXA was a brand uh, based in BLBN. Uh, towards the end, they were decimated by the quartz crisis, went underground. And let me go back a step. They were not always based in BLBN, but um, time went forward. The brand was revived and purchased by the Yeni family, who are based in BLBN. Um, the Yenis come from a fairly rich watchmaking tradition. If I have understood the history correctly, um, two of the a brother, two brothers founded a case making company or purchased a case making company, but you know, bottom line is they were making cases. They launched a company called Volca, which is still in business in BLBN. It is essentially a white label, so called private label company, meaning that they make watches for other brands, which I, you know, that's not a big, huge secret. That's where a lot of watch brands have their watches made from other assemblers. Um, having said all of that, Doxa was one of the brands that they had, and I don't want to really go into how good or poorly that brand was going, but what I can tell you is that at that time, and we can go back as late as, or recently to some extent, depending on how you look at it, um, as the late 1990s, and as of that time, the Doxa sub was not in production. Um, we're going to fast forward now a little bit, and it was, I believe, 1998 or 99, uh, Rick Murai, who was working in IT, you know, more specifically, I think he was a programmer, working, if I'm not mistaken, for Microsoft. He approached the Ennies because he was a DOCSIS sub-collector, and he had uh, quite a collection, and he essentially was looking for spare parts. Went to visit them, and part of the conversation came up you know, why don't you make the Doxa sub again? And someone went back to an office and came back with literally boxes and boxes of postcards, letters, telex, faxes, essentially requesting, would you bring the Doxa sub back? So some more conversations were held. And in the end, uh, an agreement was reached and the Yenis, um essentially gave Rick Murray, which then became Synchron Group, um, the privilege or the right to uh, manufacture and sell the Doxa sub. Now by manufacturer that I want to be very clear that the Any family was integrally involved in the manufacturing. I'm assuming through their um, through their assembly company Volca and the Doxa sub was relaunched. 
This was, if again, I'm not mistaken, 2001. Um, if I'm off on any of my dates, I apologize, but we're kind of doing this on the quick and on and off the cuff. So with the launch of that, what was interesting was that this was not any kind of typical watch release as had been known in the past. There was no retail. There were no retailers. It was all done on the strength of internet marketing that the watch would be sold directly to the customers. They would, you know, as the old saying goes, cut out the middleman. It was not a rocket ship to the moon launch. It took time. It took many years to build up. It is something that I followed probably from the time I came back to the United States from Finland. So that was 2000. Um, almost pulled the trigger once or twice, never did. Anyway, you know, time moved forward. Doxa began to grow. And by Doxa in this instance, I do mean the Doxa sub, um, which it's important to understand to a large extent could be considered almost as a different brand. Yes, you know, ultimately the Yenny's owned it. Uh, but in terms of strategy decisions, the day-to-day, -day, uh, that was handled by Synchron. Round about 2007, um, I was reached out to by Doxa. There had been a change in their North American um, setup. You know, would I be willing to consider coming to work? A few conversations were had, and you know, before I knew it, I was uh, wearing an orange tail Doxa and responsible for sales, marketing, PR, uh, service, pretty much you name it in North America. And that was a great experience. I learned a lot. And I think why I learned a lot during that episode was typically if you work for a watch brand, everybody expects you to have a specialization, meaning that uh, in my instance, I think the original attraction was, well, you're an English teacher and you can write. And certainly I spent a lot of time doing that. But as it turns out, I was also good at sales. I was pretty good at negotiating, um, fairly good at PR concepts. So we, for example, came up with a project to wear a watch. Um, all of those were great experiences, but were I working for a bigger company, I never would have had the diversity of experiences that I did. Um, so it's it's definitely an experience that I cherish, I'm grateful for, uh, and it's definitely stood me in good stead uh, for all of the brands that I've consulted with since then. Now, that kind of brings us almost to where we are now. I'm going to put a pin in that little phase, and we're going to go back in time. So let's get back to why this was important. Uh, diving wasn't really considered uh, a consumer sport. And by consumer, I mean kind of the general public. It was obviously for military purposes. It might have been for uh, geologic exploration, undersea um, exploration. I know that where we were living in Santa Barbara offshore, there were a lot of commercial divers that worked um, in, the, in the oil industry. So it wasn't really until the 60s and 70s that it became more of something that the general public was interested in. Doxa came up with an idea for a dive watch. Um, there's a lot of myth and rumor as to, you know, did they cooperate with Rolex? Did they cooperate with whoever? And I, it's not really a space I want to get into to speculate on it. But, you know, here are a few things that I can say. Doxa was the first orange dialed sub um, diving watch, the Doxa sub, and it was noted as a professional. At that time, during the testing, which was done in a lake by professional divers as well as some folks from Doxa, the belief was that orange was the most visible cover, most dis visible color, excuse me, um, when looking at uh, a depth of a reasonable amount. 
Now, fast forward about a year or two later, they went back to the same lake and then decided that, in fact, it was yellow uh, that was more visible. And that uh, ushered in the diving star, which was yellow dialed Doxa sub. But what Doxa then became known for more and more was the orange dialed sub. Um, come into the picture, Clive Cussler, who was the creator of the Dirk Pitt action hero um, that really captured the imagination, not just of America, but of readers around the world. So much so that a movie was made with Matthew McConaughey. Books still blow out of the store anytime a Dirk Pitt novel comes out. And what was notable about this was that Mr. Cussler decided to equip Dirk Pitt with a Doxa sub. Now, for people discovering Dirk Pitt novels, let's say in the late 70s, 80s, and even 90s, the belief was that this was a unicorn. It was a fictional watch. It never existed. And keep in mind, this is before the internet was really what it is today. So there wasn't a whole lot of bandwidth to go and discover it, research it, and find out. Of course, it was a real watch. Um, Doxa had been in business, but when the quartz crisis basically killed off most of the Swiss watch industry, Doxa was another fatality, and they stopped making the sub. So it it would be easy to say that, oh, it was, you know, it was a slam dunk and it was easy to bring it back. It really wasn't. It was a non-existent entity. Uh, Rick Murray, as well as one of the younger members of the Yenny family, were involved in creating the first reissue. It went fairly well and it built from there. Now, in fairness, I came on much later. I started my Doxa adventure in 2007 and worked there a little over three years until 2020, 2010, excuse me, and then did you know the odd um, marketing or PR project for Doxa sub. Now, what was interesting in all of this time, and particularly the time when I was there, was that there was always a desire for retailers to carry the watch. It was never something that worked out well in retail from Doxa's perspective, and I, I speak very honestly about this because retail in the United States is very different than it is in other countries. It's uh, predicated on the concept of memo, which would mean that you would send the watches to the store. They would maybe pay you, maybe not. You'd have to chase them forever to get paid. Doxa was a small company, and the Doxa sub in particular you know, the amount of resources that we had to throw at something like that were, I wouldn't want to say non-existent, but certainly minimal. We had to, we had to do a lot with very little, which we were very successful at doing. So a few retail outlets were opened and they were closed. And more and more, it just became clear that the Doxa sub at least was a direct to market product. Now, along the same time, uh, Michael Cobalt came on the scene. He launched his own brand called Cobalt Watches. Um, they were, you know, in, especially at the time that I was involved with Doxa, they were a steady competitor. And if nothing else, I think it really created um, the idea that there could be a direct-to-consumer watch that was not just junk. You know, in other words, that this was a real watch. It had real design it had real manufacturing quality it was worthy of the purchase and instead of being what you might expect like oh well it's it's a watch that no retailer wants these watches really became watches that everybody wanted but you had to go directly to the company to get it so that was kind of an interesting spin time moved on and uh, this past Basel world it had leaked out uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally that um the Yennies were going to take back control of the Doxa sub. They had a new CEO, 
and that um, Rick Murray's involvement with DOXA would cease. Um, I don't know what the official stop date was, but, you know, Rick and I go back a bit. And certainly I was aware of it at that time, but also felt that it's not my place or my business to talk about it. So recently, um, all of that became official and was released to the general public uh, through the DOXA sub forum and certainly through other media outlets. I think, you know, where we're getting to the heart of what the topic is for today is understanding. And I'm going to be very honest, what I think is probably at least initially an incomplete lack of understanding about why the DOXA sub worked as well as it did um, and why there might be some growing pains. Hopefully not. I, I want to say that sincerely. I, I would love to see the DOXA sub succeed. I'd love to see it continue to do well. Unfortunately, I'm not entirely sure that the people making the decisions are fully in touch with what that's going to involve. So let's take a sidestep and let's talk about why some brands um, have had a difficult time with a direct-to-consumer model when they're already in retail. The simple argument would be, well, the watch is already in retail and therefore we can't, you know, we can't really go direct as smoothly. It's difficult. And I'm going to basically call bullshit on that one. The truth of the matter is the buying public is willing to purchase expensive items online, but they definitely do need a certain amount of reassurance, a certain amount of communication, a certain amount of handholding. And this is the one thing for better or for worse, depending on what your experience was, that DOXA was good at. Um, our brief was that we had a telephone line that was open. We had a representative in California, which is myself and my colleague who was in Virginia, so we could cover a wider stretch of time zones. We had a live chat function, so if you were not necessarily interested in having long conversations, you could use a live chat function and get an answer fairly quickly. And of course, we had email. Now, also interesting to relate was the interaction with the consumer. And that can be, you know, both a spur and a bridle. On the one hand, it's great because you're getting constant feedback. And if you have people who really like your product and if they've had a good experience, they're going to tell three people. On the other hand, if you have someone who has been completely on the opposite end of that spectrum, it was a bad experience in their opinion, they don't feel like they were taken care of, they were dissatisfied with the purchase, what have you, they're going to tell 33 people. So this model and this proximity and close connection with the consumer really required definitely a thick skin, definitely required open ears, definitely required a willingness to try as hard as possible to, um, to basically fix any kind of problem or issue that might exist to the best that you could. And I would like to think that we always did. Were we perfect? No. I mean, did things happen? Were people disappointed? Were there frustrations? Absolutely. But by and large, really, the guiding principle was always, we're going to do our best to take care of this. Now, here's where other brands have fallen, uh, tripped, stumbled. I mean, pick a metaphor, but essentially, they're not really understanding the amount of human capital that's going to be involved to not only make an initial sale, but to then make further sales to maintain a relationship. Because the DOXA model truly is a relationship business. And I think this is what um, successful microbrands will share with you. And the unsuccessful microbrands and certainly big brands that have a lot of money that still have a hard time going direct are experiencing. 
And it's simply this, you have to be prepared to put the time in to communicate and speak with the customer. So a typical DOCSIS sale that I was involved with would inevitably involve at least two or three emails, possibly some live chat, and almost invariably two or three phone calls. And it's understandable because for a lot of people, it's a lot of money. $1,300, $900, and if I'm honest, even for me, $50 for something that I can't see and touch in person before I make that decision, it sometimes puts me in an uncomfortable place. So that's a piece of the puzzle and understanding the type of people who are phoning are gonna run the gamut. You are going to have people who are extremely knowledgeable about all things orological and they wanna get into the minutia. They wanna talk about what variant of superluminova is used on the hands and the dial. Okay, sure, it's a 2824, but is it a this, is it a that? Um, how, how many clicks is the bezel really going to have because you advertise this, but I heard someone say that it was two clicks less than that. You name it, it could get down to beyond brass tacks. And then you would go to the other extreme where you would have a customer who really could care, couldn't care any less about what was inside the watch. All that they cared about was that it was an orange Doxa sub, the same watch worn by their fictional hero. And believe it or not, you would spend just as much time on the phone with either one of those folks. And that's what made it interesting because everybody had a different reason for coming. Everybody, uh, it was not one size fits all. There were some very interesting people that I got to meet along the way, some celebrities, um, some people who really took the time to sort of explain the situation and really appreciate you going the extra mile. And again, it was a great experience. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that the folks who are going to be taking over this portion of it are necessarily going to understand this. I'm not saying that they won't, but I am going to say as a heads up, uh, whoever you are out there, and as best we can tell, you're somewhere in Arizona based on the area code of the phone, you're going to have to be prepared. You're going to have to be prepared to answer a lot of questions. You're going to have to be prepared to take some abuse. You're going to have to be prepared uh, to really dig into it and be patient and answer every question as if it were the most intelligent question you've ever received, even if it isn't. Because... For better, for worse, Doxa, at least the Doxa sub, is a cult watch. And that's the way that the people view it. That's why they want to buy it. That's why they're willing to buy four or five or six of them within a two-year period. And if you can put that kind of time and attention in, then you'll be successful. If, on the other hand, you're going to basically make someone leave a voicemail message, call them back, answer email, it's going to be challenging and it's going to be a fairly uphill slog for you. And the last piece of it is, if your intention is to go into retail, then be prepared because the retail landscape has changed dramatically. And it's all well and good to say, well, I have a great relationship with retailer X and I know that it's gonna be fine. Listen, it's never completely fine and that's not a dig at retailers either. Retailers are used to dealing with brands who have money and who are set up for a retail style relationship. And unfortunately, at least at the moment, that is not where Doxa, at least the Doxa sub is. And it very well may be that everything has been put in place to make sure that that's not the case and that it would be a gangbuster success. And you'll see the Doxa sub in 500 different retailers before the end of the year. And great, uh, more power to them if that's, if that's the approach and if that's going to work out for them. 
on the direct front, all I can say again is just be prepared, be ready to do your homework, be ready to put the time in. There are plenty of large brands that contact myself. I fair, I have no doubt that have contacted Rick Mirai, and in essence, they're looking for the secret sauce. And really, yeah, there probably is a little bit of secret sauce, but the real the real secret is no secret at all. That you have to put the time in. You have to chase every call and return every call and be attentive and do your absolute level best. And if you can do that, if you can put that time in, then the sales will come. At any rate, uh, we're going to wait and we're going to see. We wish them all the best. And that's it for now. But thank you for tuning in. And until then, until the next time, until we have something even more interesting to talk about, which I hope won't be too long, Tempest Fujit.